Hello, welcome to the New American Baccalaureate podcast. Uh, I'm Eli Kramer. And I'm James Anderson. Yeah, and uh, we are launching this podcast to discuss issues across higher education, public, private, and especially with the question uh, of the role of the liberal arts and the future of higher education. Uh, this podcast is part of the New American Baccalaureate Initiative, which is seeking to empower and revitalize liberal arts education for the 21st century. Uh, our first uh, inaugural interview is going to be with Dr. James Hall, the Dean of Individualized Studies at the Rochester Institute of Technology. He's the former convener of the Consortium for Innovative Environments and Learning. This consortium was devoted to the leading alternative and innovative institutions of higher education in the country. Uh, now, what exactly is innovative and alternative higher education? Well, that's a good question. Uh, what is very clear about it is the United States has been doing a variety of experiments since at least the 19th century with institutions like Berea and Antioch starting with more social justice oriented uh, utopian uh, practices, trying to actualize uh, different ways of living in the world. In the case of Berea, uh, integrated um, uh, communities with people of color in the slaveholding South before the Civil War, including the church, the school, and the broader community, and taking that up after the Civil War uh, and becoming such an important case in Kentucky that they, uh, the state of Kentucky started their desegregation early to try to ruin the institution because they saw it as a threat to the current hegemony of white supremacy. Um, in the case of Antioch College, its first generation was started by Horace Mann, one of the leaders of public education in the United States, and then a strong advocate of, um, of uh, women and men joining each other at colleges on an equal basis. Um, and it had these utopian strivings from early on that both men and women would be equal footing and uh, serve the same kinds of vocations for a better and more progressive world. Later, um, as early as the 30s, the institution started developing a reputation as a progressive hub, as it started integrating work into the regular curriculum, taking internships for a periodic pieces during the year. Uh, so much so that even John Dewey considered going there and there's record of it. And then later, uh, um, by the times of the 80s and 90s, being one of the founders and innovators of our current consent culture and the language around it. Um, there are other important institutions developed in the 30s, like Black Mountain College, where uh, playwrights and actors and musicians and painters all came together, from John Cage to Buckminster Fuller and Arthur Miller, and really created a hub for the modernist movements uh, in the United States. Later in the late 60s, schools like the Johnston Center for Integrative Studies and Johnston College of the University of Redlands and Evergreen State College integrated ideas from transpersonal psychology and from the, the 60s uh, uh, social justice movement to try to create an equal and therapeutic and holistic education model of the whole person. Uh, even today, there's millennial experiments like Quest University in Squamish, British Columbia, Canada. Uh, which seeks to build degrees around a question and centralized block courses and a, a whole new conception of what a, a liberal arts education could mean for the 21st century. Um, in our interview, we discussed the current state of the institution, their potential historic role in change, 
uh, critiques people have had of them as inward facing and navel gazing and self congratulatory instead of making real change. Uh, and really where we're headed uh, in the coming years as higher education in general radically transformed. Okay, then. All right. Well, thank you all for tuning in. Um, uh, we're going to come up in the number of weeks with different people, different spaces across higher education, and we look forward to continuing this dialogue. Thank you very much for listening. Well, uh, thanks, Jim, for doing this and for talking to us and sitting down and talking about innovative higher ed stuff. We're really excited to do a conversation with you today. Excellent. I'm excited. Great. Uh, so just to start out, would you be willing to introduce yourself and tell a little bit about your work in uh, higher education? Sure. So my name is Jim Hall. I'm the Dean of University Studies and Executive Director of the School of Individualized Study at Rochester Institute of Technology in Rochester, New York, in upstate um, west, just um, halfway between Syracuse and Buffalo. Been here for about six years now. Um, pretty unconventional pathway. Typically, what I've told people is um, uh, I was shaped by the values and experience of a, of a small college environment. But as I pursued my path through higher ed, engaged different mm -hmm. kinds of institutions and, and um, earned the PhD in American Studies at a, a large-scale uh, comprehensive public institution, the University of Iowa, um, and began with a pretty conventional research life um, uh, at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Conventional in the sense that it was an R1 institution with the usual um, complex um, hybrid mission um, across the research, teaching, and, and engagement functions. Um, eventually, I had an unusual opportunity to take over um, an experimental college environment uh, at the University of Alabama uh, called New College. It was formed during the great wave of um, Form between 1968 and 1973, but also very much um, a response to the historical situation of uh, desegregation. Um, it was very self-consciously part of the institution's strategy to modernize itself and uh, to repair its, uh, uh, its image in the marketplace. And um, uh, had no idea what I was getting myself into, no real experience with that particular sector of North American higher education um, and really in the um, efforts to textualize my work and the situation that I found myself in really started digging around into the history of these kinds of educational environments they actively network myself um, across um, innovative domains whether they were in scaled institutions like the University of Alabama, or whether they were small standalones, um, like the ones that I found in the Consortium for Innovative Environments of Learning. And after a decade of directing New College, um, uh, I moved on to uh, uh, take over um, the convening function of uh, this remarkable grouping and gathering um, of um, innovative educational spaces and the opportunity to uh, learn more and really deeply embed myself 
this particular ethos and and um, uh, uh, delivery mode, um, and uh, did the best I could to um, make that cohort um, sustainable, and uh, and then found myself for the usual um, array of personal and professional reasons up here in New York, where I took over um, another um, complex different kind of learning environment uh, in what was called the Center for Multidisciplinary Studies. And then we ended up reshaping and rebranding as the School of Individualized Studies. Um, so that's the, the short um, version with all the difficult parts um, uh, erased or shaved down. Um, um, but I've been uh, lucky to operate um, in a mission-driven and um, Experiment-driven uh, framework for about 15 years now. I, I've noticed you've already used the kind of plethora ring of language around the schools you became interested in. You know, CL's preferred ver version of innovative environment and learning, or when you were talking about uh, New College of the University of Alabama, experimental. And so, as you well know, there's a variety of terms for these kinds of institutions of higher education. Others are student-centered, holistic, integrative, interdisciplinary, individualized, maverick, telic, et cetera. So I was interested to ask you, how do you demarcate particularly the field of your work and service and, and why you're engaged? I, that's a kind of follow-up question. Why do you find yourself engaged with whatever you call these kinds of uh, institutions or learning spaces? Yeah. Um, uh, I think the important thing is um, whenever any of us find ourselves in a room together, we recognize, recognize each other pretty quickly and know that we are somehow in uh, the same business. I, um, I still gravitate, I think, most energetically towards um, experimental um, because I think it um, interacts in some positive ways simply with the inquiry work of educational institutions more broadly have questions and we try to find structured ways to answer those questions by processes of, of um, testing hypotheses, um, gathering evidence, evaluating evidence. And um, I think it in some ways puts uh, these non-traditional um, outside the box institutions in the m mainstream of thinking about um, what educational work is. But I don't mind any of those other terms, um, and there are all kinds of um, both branding and positioning and timing issues for which um, an institution might gravitate um, uh, towards any of those terms. For, for me, the, the innovation one has gotten really messy because of ways in which it's become a kind of cultural buzzword. Uh, for a particular variety of of, of, uh, of capitalism, and um, again, I find a lot of the edge and a lot of um, um, the ideological commitments we have, for lack of a better phrase, um, get rubbed down in a way um, by the overuse of the word um, innovation. Um, so experiment, I think, speaks to trial and error. I think it speaks to a troubling part of our shared history, which is institutions have become profoundly comfortable in a self-imposed identity and uh, not paid attention to 
the ways in which the world is changing around them and um, you know you're left with this puzzle of uh, so-called um, historically innovative institutions um, um, where we just assume that by declaring our identity as as, um, as outside or off the center or innovative that's enough um, for us to um, um, maintain our shops as it would be. You know, the, the question of, um, you know, getting down to the, the nitty gritty of what is the connecting tissue between all, all of these uh, institutions that uh, want to see themselves as somehow out of um, the mainstream or, or maybe to use William Carlos Williams language to be working against the grain in some fundamental way. Um, for me, it's it, um, the question of um, intention and student autonomy are the ones that I come back to over and over and over again. Um, I think I've become uh, deeply connected to um, uh, the educational faith that by empowering students to take control over their uh, own lives and their own educational experience that there is um, some core value there that um, that resonates with me. I don't know that I have. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. Go, go, go. Finish that thought. I was going to say, I don't know that I have, um, you know, and I feel like I'm constantly looking for answers within the learning science to know whether or not um, that's a good instinct on my part or a naive instinct on my part. Um, I know it resonates with my own personal story that I think the, the, the first generation college student, the reason why I became deeply personally invested in higher education as an institution had to do with um, uh, the kinds of faith that a variety of um, smart people showed in me and allowed me to, um, uh, to chart my own course. So it, you know, I, I think all of this stuff is in flux, and all of this is um, um, shared inquiry for those of us who who, um, who value this network of institutions to continue to answer this question in a in a harsh era of um, uh, hard questions about return on investment. Um, we probably need to have better answers than we currently do to um, to what our um, our core work is. Uh, but I still don't have any difficulty uh, simply saying this is it, this is the right place for me. Uh, it's, it's, you were just talking about this. Um, it's you know the continuous experimentation and trying to uh, find a way of just working against the grain. Kind of thinking about that in your work, looking at these institutions historically, especially for maybe an audience less familiar with them than uh, we are. Um, do you think these kinds of institutions are especially prevalent in the United States? And if so, what do you think has incited so many of them? Um, and in particular, I'm interested with this kind of, do you think there is uh, some aspect to the kind of American higher education experience that's willing to do the more experimental work to kind of meet present need that perhaps doesn't happen at other times in the history of higher education? Yeah, so I think there are um, obviously some structural conditions um, that uh, foreground um, the great diversity of um, 
institutions in the, uh, the U.S. context in particular. Um, you know, and you could um, theorize or historicize that to have something to do with um, a hostility to um, centralized environments. Um, I don't think it needs to be necessarily framed in terms of um, existing on a left-right um, continuum. Um, we have a system, um, um, a federal system in the United States where the Department of Education claims certain rights state um, structures um, managing higher education claim certain rights, regional accreditors um, um, claim certain rights, professional associations, and individual institutions themselves. And, and um, again, I think um, a long and deep inquiry is possible that would, uh, uh, that might look at the ways in which um, the development of higher education in the, the U.S. parallels other core institutions in, in any culture, whether they're um, religious or economic or social. You know, I think there's been, it's just been fertile ground um, for the growth of experiments generally. I think you could look at the existence, rise and fall of uh, utopian communities in the U.S. as paralleling what has happened with um, Experimental college environments. Then um, you could also probably have an interesting conversation about efficiency and democracy as well. The same kinds of ways in which we we fret in um, U.S. culture about our ability to effectively deliver healthcare um, or to effectively deliver um, a social safety net, and we shouldn't become too smug about um, um, about uh, what we think is possible within these experiments. Um, there's certainly lots of things that I see attractive in the Australian system and the European system and the UK system. Um, well, there is, I think, um, historically less um, uh, experimentation. Um, centralization probably does bring um, uh, certain values to the table. Um, but I do think, you know, I think I would probably also fight energetically for the preservation of the diversity that we see in the consumer perspective, it certainly is a space where um, everybody can find their thing, the thing that resonates with, um, that allows them to find a connection between uh, sense of self and, and sense of institutional mission. I think the thing we're all struggling with right now is whether or not it produces um, inefficiencies that are just hard to regularize and, and, and hard to um, figure out what sustainability is going to look for in the midst of um, demographic changes that are not necessarily um, so easily manageable. Uh, I want to jump that's in a, with a oh, no, yeah, question, go ahead. if that's okay. Please, please. So, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm curious as to whether you find there are certain disciplines or fields that are uh, less conducive to the kind of experimental approach that uh, you've, you've been discussing, if you think there are, you know, certain aspects of certain fields that uh, make it more difficult to sort of embrace that kind of holistic innovative model. Um, I don't think by definition that, um, uh, that anything is off the table. As somebody who's managed programmatic efforts on the ground, there's no question that um, 
capital intensive um, research enterprises that are sometimes harder to um, reconcile with um, the, the intimate scale um, that we value in different ways. Um, but I was pretty proud of at New College um, at the University of Alabama that we were able to make some specific investments in uh, or were able to ensure that um, faculty in uh, in the sciences had a role to play in the delivery of curriculum and um, the determination of what um, holism looked like. Um, some of the some of the experiments that are just getting fired up right now that I'm most excited about are trying to theorize this disciplinary space. I think energetically. Um, Christine Ortiz, um, who's the former graduate dean at, at uh, MIT, um, has been leading uh, this interesting um, experiment for a couple of years now called Station One. It is looking for um, how to make scientific inquiry and the experimental tradition uh, reconcilable and, and sustainable. And they are um, self-consciously beginning to frame um, a, a research agenda for themselves that is non-capital intensive, that um, gets at uh, questions that exist at the intersection of the humanities and the sciences. And I think that's um, 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 really interesting. Um, I think there's a role to play um, uh, for folks who exist in the experimental environment um, to, to really try to drive questions um, uh, that are at the heart of automation, are at the heart of the things we're most fearful about around um, technologies like AI, again, that are not capital intensive, that are thinking intensive. I think that's another way to, to for us to send the message that um, um, experimental environments, that innovative environments, are not simply about um, getting students within a certain kind of humanist or social scientific inquiry. There's no reason at all uh, that we can't be looking for vital partnerships that that ensure that um, students we're producing in these environments are engaged with technology, engaged with um, uh, the sciences in a deep, uh, deep, deep way. And what what do you think about maybe the historic and current role of these institutions with, you know, important questions about the survival of democracy and ecological crisis and social justice and civil rights movements? Do you think these institutions have can or have had or maybe have the possibility of being uh, important players in that kind of social change? Or do you think they have a different role to play? Um, again, I think this is one of the spaces where there's a, um, there is a danger of smugness um, that we should certainly be alert to. <clears throat> you know, I, I feel like I have been engaged in battles with colleagues in this space in the past that um, it's Really important not to overplay our hands to 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 assume that we have um, um, a monopoly on conscience or a monopoly on um, a particular ethical perspective. Um, I do think um, as living learning ex um, experiments at the scale we typically operate on there's a, there's a there's a set of insights that are available to us 
um, uh, that we can readily share and think about uh, the possibilities of scaling. Um, you know, at, at different moments in the history of these institutions, labor colleges of the 1920s and 30s, um, the arts informed experiments of the 40s and 50s at places like Bennington and Black Mountain. Um, I, I think uh, questions about um, what it means to participate in community have been um, uh, front-facing um, uh, in some uh, deep and meaningful ways. But I do think, um, you know, that sometimes we dig a hole for ourselves um, when uh, we want to insist that the only place that, that um, a core ethical reflection um, is taking place is in small-scale, um, self-identified, um, innovative institutions. I think, you know, it's like, um, um, I think the fight to preserve these distinctive spaces does speak to um, the health of our democracy just in the same way in which I would um, uh, would argue that um, diversity of religious institutions, um, diversity of cultural activity is also core um, uh, to our sense of uh, rich civic um, participation. Um, um, you know, I think that it would be an interesting um, exercise to try to perhaps more deeply inventory specific insights that have come out of these spaces that are um, translational and transferable across domains. I think I think our tendency has been a little bit more to say, um, uh, look at us and uh, look how empowering we are to members of, of, of our communities. It, it would be really um, interesting to trace the influence of, um, you know, an Alexander Michael John, for for instance, or to look at uh, the long-term impact of folks that came out of that University of Wisconsin experimental college model, um, and to see how they impacted um, um, the communities that they lived in at a, um, a grassroots kind of way. And speaking along that line, just to think out well, uh, what do you think these institutions do well or where they have made an impact? And I think you already hinted at some areas where you uh, see things they either could do better or that have been continually problematic about their work. Well, again, I think um, uh, the, the kinds of anecdotal um, uh, alumni um, uh, testimony that all of us gather up over time readily receive feedback on the ways in which um, experimental institutions have the ability to affirm the particularities of identity, um, that they have a, a, a rich historical track record of discovering structures for speech and exchange um, that make folks that sometimes otherwise feel in the margins feel like they're um, central to decision-making, central to uh, mission-making, central to um, their own institutional futures. Um, I think we have rich testimony um, in these spaces about the ways in which um, we effectively cultivate a sense of civic responsibility rooted in an attitude towards lifelong learning. 
Um, sometimes that comes out of, I think, um, different approaches to assessment, different approaches to uh, what the credential actually means and, and requires. Um, I, I think we are probably better at um, breaking people of um, um, particular uh, relationship to testing and um, short-term um, competence um, evaluations. You know, I think we demand more of uh, a, a sense of uh, community-mindedness. I think those are all um, deep, deep positives. Um, um, you know, and, and remain the things that perhaps I get most excited about when I'm alums of these places, and certainly when I have the opportunity um, to informally watch um, the pathways of, of, of students who have interacted with me in these spaces. And again, you're right. I think I already have hinted what I what I think some of our worst habits are as well. Um, Self congratulation um, um, is a problematic one. You know, sometimes it it um, it emerges out of uh, the accumulated resentments um, um, uh, that we uh, build up over time, where we we feel we've not been taken seriously enough, or we've um, um, had to spend so much time on questions of institutional survival, um, or we've had to um, uh, um, spend too much time uh, justifying either pedagogical methods or Again, pathways of participation, pathways of admission, and um, um, and participation. Um, I, I think um, I think there's actually an interesting kind of mainstreaming um, that's taking place right now. I, mean, I sort of talked about the um, earlier about the um, the flattening of innovation, but you know, um, I, I also find there's an openness to right now amongst parents that I interact with, a sense that um, uh, there's something to be said for the language of customization, the language of personalization, the language of innovation more generally um, that they recognize and value. Um, you know, I, I, we'll probably have to work in the opposite direction in that space as, as, as people do reach out to embrace us under the general banner of innovation. Uh, making sure that we do maintain um, an edge, um, uh, that, that we have, um, that we are um, clear about um, um, what we demand of folks. It, it's um, these are not spaces in which students can afford to be um, passive um, in. Um, I'm sort of hesitant to make any um, bigger, broader claims. I think I always feel like the best claims I make local and sometimes even specific to the trajectories of individual students. Um, um, here's a person who was on this particular kind of pathway and um, once they came into um, this other space whose values were slightly different than perhaps the more regimented K-12 system that they came out of, here's how they were able to blossom, here's the good work that they were able to do. Um, I always come back to um, not much use in, in this audio environment, but um, a couple years ago I had um, one of my students sent me a, a wedding photo of 
students who came out of the new college space at Alabama and included, you know, 25 or 30 peers um, that um, uh, that attended the wedding and all came through uh, the new college space. And, and it was really striking to me as I literally went kind of picture to picture through the photograph, uh, recognized how many of those students were deeply embedded in uh, the nonprofit space in the state of Alabama, the fact that they had made a commitment to um, the state of Alabama, that they didn't um, immediately capitalize on the social and cultural capital that um, that they had earned and, and um, were trying to transform um, the, the deeply conservative space in which they found themselves in. I wanted to interject once again. You mentioned the sometimes regimented K through 12 curriculum. And so I was curious as to whether uh, you think generally K through 12 education in the United States, be it public or private, adequately or effectively prepares individuals for this type of experimental education or what maybe educators individually or, or schools or districts might be able to do to, to uh, better prepare folks uh, for that type of uh, engaged holistic learning, or if you think it requ it might require, you know, a, something at the public policy type level in order to make uh, changes uh, in K through 12 that uh, would make it so individuals are uh, can can make uh, an easier transition into something uh, like the uh, the schools that you've been involved with. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it's probably worth distinguishing between. Um, the demands uh, that accountability structures make upon people and the, the attitudes and efforts of individual educators um, uh, within that space. I, um, it's certainly rare to find um, a K-12 teacher who says um, uh, that they're against personalization or against uh, empowering students or against uh, providing their students with, <coughs> with more autonomy. Um, I don't find, um, you know, as I engage my um, my own children's teachers over time, um, uh, we we share much much more um, in the values territory uh, than we do um, have fundamental differences. I would say, you know, the common uh, lament amongst um, most teachers is. Um, the demands that teaching two um, standardized testing um, frameworks uh, put upon them um, as educators, the way in which it kills their own creativity, the way in which it um, makes it hard for them to address the needs of, of individual students. Certainly the very best of those folks, um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm amazed at what they're able to do in terms of uh, um, render under Caesar um, what what must be, but also um, uh, frame autonomy, um, uh, frame self-actualization, frame um, freedom of inquiry and, and choice for um, for their students. Um, so yes, in, in in you know, I think I think not only there are all kinds of really complicated questions that have to do with the transition from high school to um, the post-secondary environment more generally. It's, it's a lament of um, faculty colleagues who do not work in um, experimental environments, that um, there are some 
core ways in which they feel uh, the K-12 system in the U.S. does not um, uh, prepare students adequately. I experience certainly um, uh, students who come from all kinds of spaces in that complex network that we call K-12. Um, I get students who come out of homeschool environments uh, who have um, uh, emerged out of um, alternative education environments, um, who come from IB schools, who come from arts and science academies. You know, and it is hard to generalize um, that students who have had more autonomy necessarily thrive unconditionally um, in experimental or unconventional post-secondary environments. You know, we're dealing with just a messy developmental space for young people. Lots of issues having to do with, you know, executive function and control and having to do with identity formation that don't always make it easy for them to take advantage of any opportunity that um, uh, that we necessarily um, put in front of them. Um, so you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to knock K twelve colleagues. I don't want to. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd rather look at this vast pool of potential uh, that comes my way from all kinds of spaces and um, puts a premium um, for all of us um, on the value of listening. It's a premium for all of us on the value of, of um, um, well, I certainly experiment again and and um, and on human contact. Um, um, we're involved in a learning system. We have to take um, intimacy uh, seriously. We can't necessarily turn our nose up um, at the opportunities that might arise with um, technologically mediated things. Um, you know, our our greatest strength um, in the experimental space, I think, is our openness to uh, whatever comes our way. And um, uh, yes, um, uh, we wish we received more students who had more opportunity for exploration, who uh, were comfortable um, with inquiry for its own sake and for the value of ideas for their own sake. Um, but, um, you know, it's just all part of um, um, the, the remarkable challenge that the educational enterprise presents to all of us. Maybe taking RIT as an example, uh, how do you balance uh, or how do you think about uh, the kinds of students you want to bring in and support in the program? I'm particularly thinking with uh, both diversity of students in terms of you know, marginalized groups, but also socioeconomic background. And just as a kind of, of course, the, the kind of stereotype that many of these institutions have historically served people with a lot of social capital who, and you know, the familial support and other things to be capable of autonomy in the first place. The, the kind of autonomy that these institutions uh, uh, want to support and cultivate, they have some of that going in. Uh, so obviously it's a big question to think about for every institution, but I was thinking in your role uh, at RIT with the School for Individualized Studies, how do you how are you trying to navigate that as a as a community? Um, yeah, that's a big one. Um, well, first off, let me say that um, you know I, I do believe we're seeing the beginnings of some conversation um, about the. Um, the, the larger impacts of what I would call the political economy of reputation. 
and I think people are beginning to reflect on um, the limits of our obsession uh, with rankings, the limits of our obsession with tiered higher education system. I, I see some good things beginning to happen. I think the the news out of Hopkins about um, uh, them taking uh, a legacy out of uh, the admissions equation is really important. I, I, I hope we're generally moving in the direction of of a system that is more interested in figuring out the the, the match between student desire um, and institutional capacity as opposed to a more narrow fight um, uh, to chase down uh, the so-called um, best. Um, here, um, um, the individualized study environment um, performs a dual role in um, our local economy. On the one hand, um, we hold out an opportunity for our, um, students who, who want uh, more control over their educational pathway to come on in through the front door. Um, but we also serve an institutional problem-solving problem solving function in that we gather up lots of um, students who made um, an initial poor first, first gamble, you know, didn't have the opportunity to do the kinds of clear, uh, career exploration or exploration of passion and aptitude that allows them uh, to find um, uh, the right institutional framework for them. So, you know, my, my line is that we serve a lot of ex-engineers and ex-computer scientists, students who were told that there was a short path to um, economic thriving. Uh, you just grab hold of one of these things uh, that some external entity has said will provide you with um, uh, uh, employment and job security and, and get on board. And, and um, we certainly see that that um, um, is not particularly effective messaging. There's a lot of churn that that, uh, that produces. So we, 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 we are here when they need us. And um, a lot of the work that we do um, is um, uh, patting people on the back and encouraging them that they have not lost the capacity to learn. In fact, um, you know, they may be um, now even more effectively positioned than they thought they were coming out of high school because they've learned something about themselves and they've learned something about what, what it is that they, um, uh, they want out of education. Um, you know, I would say I'm lucky to work with a group of faculty and staff that are not obsessed um, in general with that um, political economy of reputation. And um, um, uh, see themselves first and foremost as student-centered educators, uh, willing to meet people where they are. And we're really lucky that um, that set of attitudes produces a rich openness um, to diversity. Um, we are probably the most diverse uh, educational environment um, at um, RIT um, in the midst of um, um, the polytechnic space. Um, that diversity manifests itself with, uh, um, in terms of uh, richer gender diversity than you typically find in the polytechnic space, richer uh, racial and ethnic diversity, um, but I would say probably also um, politics, gender identity, um, 
uh, attitudes towards education, attitudes towards credentialing. Um, it, it's 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 an exciting space to be in, and the key thing for us is, I think, just reveling in it and enjoying um, the challenges that it presents us um, ourselves with, and and not getting hung up too hung up about external optics, um, too hung up about um, the temptations that um, some easy ranking or some um, um, easy comparison with um, uh, some more rarefied uh, environment might provide. Uh, as the, uh, on kind of two macro forces we face of both the um, testing regime of K-12 increasingly in higher education as we figure out ways to evaluate ourselves. And on the other hand, as there's a decline enrollment and as I already mentioned, a real shift in student demographic. What do you see the prospect for being able to maintain these spaces for what it sounded like failure and being able to support people and nudge them when they feel like they're at a loss in your education? Do you think these spaces are, uh, un as, and uh, I guess, do you see these spaces as uh, under threat or as things go mainstream, there's new opportunities? I'm also having in mind, of course, the, the recent challenges that Marlboro and Hampshire face, both in their own ways, essentially closing or shifting into other institutions. So, curious yeah, um, lots and lots to unpack there. I mean, um, again, there are some fundamental demographic challenges in the, in the U.S. marketplace have to do with um, uh, um, concentration of um, small college environments in the Northeast and the shift of population south. There are um, questions about our orientation towards um, the population of 18 to 21 year olds itself. Um, um, uh, you know that, that that complicate the institutional health of some places that that um, we have deep relationship with. Now, I'm certainly, as I've watched things unfold in the Northeast, I think the thing I've been most attentive to has been the ways in which um, governmental entities have been largely unwilling to intervene. So even um, in a state like Vermont, where we have um, small, vital, longstanding institutions who are the key industry in small communities, there's been um, a hesitancy on the part of state entities to, uh, to make any intervention at all. And so yeah, you know, I do think we need to be prepared for um, uh, more economic churn, um, uh, more creativity in in sorting out what kinds of partnerships allow these institutions to continue to have um, a presence. Um, I think we probably, um, I don't think we need to be wholly Pollyanna-ish about this. I think, um, you, you know, if you look at the course of um, um, educational, church, cultural environments in the United States um, um, over the past 250 years, um, some things come and go, and, and um, they revitalize and transform um, their energy elsewhere. Um, uh, there's both a process of mourning and a process of expectation, I think, that we need to, um, uh, to be involved in. In general, um, you know, I think there's there is an openness to the language of personalization and customization 
um, that is new and exciting and I think can be commandeered um, uh, locally in all kinds of ways um, on the part of faculty members who have a deep interest in um, experiment. Um, you know, I, uh, even more importantly for me than the recent stories about places like Hampshire and um, um, Green Mountain and Marlboro and um, every other small college space that's under some threat. Um, it's probably more important, I think, to look at a lot of what was taking place in the mid-1990s um, when you saw um, some new structures, um, New Century College that emerged at George Mason, I think is a, um, a really interesting case to look at it. It looked and smelled, you know, a lot like every other um, experiment that had emerged over the last 50 to 100 years, but there was a real interesting tension there between um, the ways in which um, uh, large entities wanted to exploit the language of consumer choice um, as part of an extension of the accountability regime and also an extension of um, an attitude towards uh, downsizing in other domains. I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty nervous, I'll say. I'm, I'm less nervous about the scope of um, the disappearance of small colleges. Um, I, I, um, um, I don't believe um, we had the passing of Clayton Christensen just this past week, and, and Christensen, who's probably the most important theorist of, of market disruption, was, was predicting some pretty dour things for um, the loss of um, or the consolidation of, of small institutions across the system. I, I, I think there have been more um, 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 reasonable projections of, 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 of what the, um, the market impact might be um, over the 3,500 institutions of higher education that are out there. I think more troubling should be the ways in which the language, again, of innovation and experimentation, personalization, customization um, uh, can be put by profoundly conservative forces uh, in the higher education space. Um, I, I you know, actually every, every innovation experiment that's out there that purports to be about democratization, um, you can probably also frame it in terms of um, um, an, a more narrow take on consumer choice, right? Um, I've seen some small college environments, um, for instance, um, begin to deeply invest in um, individualization structures, not because they have um, a deep interest in student autonomy, self-actualization, um, um, but because they've decided there's no way for them to deliver on the current menu of 45 majors that they deliver, right? Um, uh, they can't sustain the faculty footprint that is probably required to be um, a high-functioning, comprehensive uh, liberal arts environment. And so how do you do it? Well, you invest in ed tech, you invest in an individualized major program, that allows you to say to um, your core market, you can continue to come in and do what you want and what's important to you, 
um, even though we're not going to be able to um, provide the knowledge footprint either in um, human capital or library resources that's really um, needed to be a, a high-functioning um, um, education institution. So I think we need to be actively engaged and, and you know, well aware um, as people float things under the banner of innovation and experiment and make sure um, uh, that there's a values match, uh, that there is um, a recognition um, that running experiments is not, not a way to um, avoid making investments in human capital. You know, my, my, um, uh, in the ways in which natural experimenters can't be afraid of the opportunities that technology might provide us, those of us that, though, we also need to be nervous about, the, uh, about uh, narrowly technological solutions or narrowly administrative solutions um, are getting the most out of, of um, um, the democratic promise of higher education more generally. James, do you have a follow-up there? No, I, my question was kind of about the, the possibility of that co-optation and how to uh, kind of guard against it, which I think you It's there know. and it's real. Um, you know, I, I think it's also important, you know, in the same way in which I would highlight us paying close attention to individual educators in the K-12 space and, and their values. I also wouldn't, I, I, you know, I, I think we need to be sympathetic to um, every provost and every president um, that's desperately looking for um, economic sustainability in, in the midst of uh, the enrollment downturn, um, that, we, that we not um, assume that they are politically retrograde um, in their orientation. Uh, yes, co-optation is possible. Um, but also, I think there's some dynamic partnership opportunities that are out there too, and and um, in ways in which we can really embrace the moment and um, um, re remind folks how remarkably uh, resilient um, experimental college environments have been um, over the past 50 years. Uh, just to follow up, and maybe as a last one, because I realize we're running up on our time here. Um, you recently had an article about the university in 2040, and I wanted to ask you particularly about the uh, experimental education space in 2040, uh, both what you think it might look like and what you would hope for in terms of us utilizing the opportunities available to use that space to the best we can. And as a kind of uh, subtext, I'd be very interested if what role if and what distinction you think a small liberal arts college might play versus a university in those kinds of spaces? Or if, frankly, there is such a thing as a, a liberal arts college as we think about it today in 20 years from now? Yep. So um, I think the, um, the general um, insight that I've been trying to wrestle with um, has to do with how it is that we will theorize the meanings of, uh, of human to human contact um, in higher education um, over the next 25 years, right? There's, there's lots of um, um, uh, utopian language about uh, the democratic possibilities of technology and decentralization and self-direction. Um, 
um, and corporate mediation um, in the educational space right now. Um, we had the original articulation of the MOOC promise um, probably a half dozen years ago. Um, we, we've we've had um, uh, we we have current um, enthusiasm for boot camp, small scale certificates. Um, education on the run, um, education on the fly, and again, I'm, I'm not uninterested in any of those things, um, but I think um, I'm, I'm still interested in um, what higher education in the traditional sense has delivered for about 800 years, which has been um, to put um, experience and inexperience um, in a room together and to um, to sort out how um, that might make the world um, better and how it might make the individuals involved um, better. I think the the big transformation in the 30 years that I've been in the higher education machine has been <clears throat> the ways in which we've um, professionalized in a positive frame uh, the teaching function. Um, <clears throat> Um, I think it's the biggest change in higher education since the advances in the understanding of cognition and learning between 1880 and 1910 um, um, that led to the um, the most important Dewey and insights of of um, the first quarter of the of the 20th century. Um, <clears throat> we we I think we're at the point now where most young faculty recognize that there is a science of learning and that they need to engage in it in some way uh, to become um, effective instructors. And, and, I'm, and I'm wondering if there's opportunity over the next 25 years um, to help everyone in, in the higher education enterprise to similarly, similarly theorize um, uh, our investment in intimacy. We, in the same ways in which 25 years ago we took for granted all there was to teaching was to be organized, clear, and authentic, um, I, I think we feel much the same way at the current moment about all those things that we think of as in the, the general box of um, advising, coaching, mentoring. Um, all I need to do is be present and um, uh, real in my interaction with um, the folks that um, want access to my my um, my expertise and experience. Um, I think that's the way to um, to moderate um, the impact of technology. I think it's the way to draw connectedness across um, the diversity of the higher education system. Um, it, it's the way to draw attention to what's consistent between what happens in the R1 institution and the liberal arts college and the community college and the boot camp and the MOOC. Um, uh, we're, we're trying to connect um, desire and inexperience um, with um, um, readiness um, and, and, and knowledge. Um, and I think that um, potentially um, has a role to play in assuring the diversity of the system, the democratic commitments of the, of, of, of the system. Um, you know, as to, I mean, I think the, the tail end of your question about whether or not, um, um, whether or not there remains any real value in 
maintaining a kind of um, genre distinction between um, the R1 institution and the liberal arts college, I think is a really um, interesting one. I, I, I'm, I'm comfortable in a faith that suggests um, uh, some people will gravitate towards big and some people will gravitate towards small and um, um, find the kind of um, community they're, um, they're looking for. I hope, um, in some ways, I hope that that diversity of desire will trump kind of relentless demand um, for market efficiencies. Um, you know, that's not to say that um, some small places might not go by the wayside. I think some big places might go by the wayside um, too. Um, um, you know, and, and I also have, you know, obviously a deep investment in the idea of small within big and um, small connected to small. Um, probably the, the most um, exciting and dynamic parts of my work over the last half dozen years have been in the realm of um, imagining partnerships, making connections, finding how how big institutions can serve smaller ones, how smaller ones can serve big ones, what it means to produce economies of scale when when um, small institutions come together. So I'm, I, I remain um, um, uh, profoundly optimistic um, uh, you know, without repeating um, uh, Trump's language the other day about um, uh, prophets of doom. Um, I, I mean, I think there is something to um, uh, reducing, resisting the language of inevitability um, um, that, that produces um, um, uh, an unuseful um, pessimism. I, I, um, I think I'm still all in with the Gramscian um, um, uh, pessimism of the intellect and, and optimism of the will. I, I, I want to be alert. I want to be sensitive to uh, co-optation, but um, I'm all in, in in trying to um, figure out what, what serves students um, um, at the current moment and the diversity of students that come my way. And sometimes that's going to have to do with um, decentralization and maximizing the use of technology, and other times it's going to be about walking students away back to the table, back to the seminar room, back to... Um, the one-on-one -on -one conversation um, uh, in the office um, that certainly um, served me so well in my own development. Well, uh, that was great. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Jim. Um, uh, I think we learned a lot. And yeah, thank you for being one of our first NAB podcasters. You're making me uh, say this stuff out loud because otherwise it just goes on in my head. And uh, <laughs> that is the... Uh, uh, the invitation to uh, pessimism and despair, despair, I think, is um, um, just leaving it inside and fretting. I, I, I think there's great things coming, and it has a lot to do with the, the commitment of young people like yourself and, and um, the ways in which there are lots of folks involved in this process of, of um, theorizing what a diverse future looks like. James, uh, any last follow-up questions that we, will, we can splice in? Nothing for me. Uh, thanks, Jim. Okay. Appreciate you taking the time. So we're back on the NAB podcast. That was an interview with uh, Jim Hall, the director of or the dean and director of this school for individualized studies at the Rochester Institute of Technology.
um, you know, that uh, discussion really struck for me, uh, not only just the rapid change in higher education, but how much uh, institutions of higher education can be a place for social reform, whether they can really enact a kind of public pedagogy or what Eric Olin Wright calls a real utopia, a kind of alternative way of, of engaging in the world that can show other people possibilities they didn't realize were there for them. Uh, I, I was just wondering, uh, uh, James, what, if, what you think about that. Do you think these institutions have some possibility for being movement centers? Do you think they're too inward facing? I was curious for your thoughts as someone not so uh, deeply embedded in them. Right. And I think it's an interesting possibility. I was going to ask you, and you know, we touched on this with, with Jim in the interview, but what do you think are the best examples of that social reform being enacted in some of these uh, alternative spaces? Like uh, ones that really come to mind and maybe even some that the public might have heard of. Yeah, I think Berea College is an interesting example, both for its, its continuing work and its historic work. Uh, as I mentioned in the intro to this interview, um, it had an integrated community in the slaveholding South before the Civil War. Uh, in those days, it was pretty small. It started with like 730 people. And by the time of the uh, end of the Civil War, it was only slowly growing, but pretty much under constant threat. And one of the reasons I think this was the case was uh, pretty simple, which is that if an integrated community life could be successful, it lured other people to a different way they could live, that this was not so radical or impossible or would head to disaster. Simply showing it was actual in practice was enough to kind of threat the, be a threat to the current hegemony in uh, Kentucky. Uh, this, as I said, also led to, uh, I think, a pretty striking case, which is that uh, the Kentucky government, as the school developed to several thousands, um, decided to make a landmark case calling for segregation across all of Kentucky. And this case went to the Supreme Court with Maria trying to defend it. And a, a really unknown but fascinating discussion with leaders across higher education, like Charles Elliott at Harvard, discussing what Maria should do should the Supreme Court come down against them, which it ultimately did, about whether they should split and make uh, serve some uh, 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 historic, basically make a kind of historically black college separate from the white college, or whether the institution um, should uh, ultimately close down if it wasn't able to serve its mission, which some of its founders felt very strongly for. Um, I, I think, uh, it, and in its case today, one of the more striking elements of that is it continued to be perhaps really the only institution of higher education of its kind with absolutely no tu uh, tuition and all students working on campus. And all students are only accepted on the basis of at, at least not uh, a certain uh, low amount of family or personal income on the FAFSA. And extreme sensibility, I've been there in recent years, and a real uh, sensibility for serving the local Appalachian community, that going to the institution means you have to give some sort of service in exchange and a real attention to the student body with very different needs from others, even little things like uh, how to prepare for an interview or if you, you don't have enough to eat for the week, where can you go then? Where would it not be embarrassing to ask? And just really thoughtful services all around for that end. Um, so anyway, that's one I find probably most striking. Another, as I repeated at the beginning, but I think is a really interesting case study, which a little is known about is the 80s and 90s at Antioch, which were some of the language about verbal consent uh, 
uh, as part of an important value to be articulated, especially for people in undergraduate with party culture and everything else um, to be extended. And, it, and this was included for things like student services. So I do think they have at least opportunities for this kind of work. Now, whether you know, a school, uh, these kinds of schools end, end up doing some navel gazing and self-congratulatory uh, behavior and whether ultimately now as tuition costs skyrocket, they only cater to an extremely elite class in the first place is an open question I'm not so sure about. Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen the 1969 film Easy Rider? I have not seen it. That's okay. a pretty embarrassing thing to say. But no, that's all right. I, I'm, I watched it recently preparing for this Hollywood in the 1960s course that I'll be teaching soon. And it's a Dennis Hopper film with Peter Fonda, sort of a buddy biker film that's sympathetic toward the 60s counterculture. And at, there's one scene where uh, the, the two guys, Peter Fonda and, and Dennis Hopper, uh, they, they're riding around the, the country on their motorcycles and they stop at this one counterculture commune that uh, a lot of you know, disaffected young folks are trying to get off the ground. And Dennis Hopper, is, ever the cynic, is just like, you know, this is never going to work. But Peter Fonda's like, yeah, man, I think they're going to do it. I think they can do it. And it did, that scene, it just it popped in my mind because I'd like to be that optimistic about these sort of things. Like, yeah, you know what? They're going to, like, these are, these types of institutions are going to persevere and flourish and have the kind of impact that we'd like to see them have. But I think you're right that it remains an open question. I did want to ask you about the political economic situation and, and circumstances surrounding some of these, these schools. Uh, is that one of the major hurdles that they face? And how have uh, you know, some of these schools dealt with that political economy? I and mean, Jim touched on this, but I wondered if, you know, in your experience, you've uh, encountered some interesting ways of managing the books and that sort of thing. Yeah, so that, that's a, a good and hard uh, question. Um, the answer is it's a real struggle at the moment. Uh, and I'll go to the kind of uh, present versus historic circumstances to explain this a little. Uh, like when Black Mountain started, this, you know, that's what the one I was talking about, Black Mountain College, a little side of Asheville, North Carolina. It started essentially on a YMCA campus uh, with some really interesting leaders from Rollins College, John Andrew Rice, and several other institutions. And over time, just through their established relationships with places like Harvard, they made this uh, informal agreement that if students did their first two years at places like there, or even longer, uh, that their work would be transferred credit-wise to one of these elite institutions. So they had these networks that were filters. Um, uh, I'm not sure if you could get away with doing that today. In fact, I don't think you could at all. It would be nearly impossible. The kind of uh, a frontier of higher education even in periods as late as the 30s and in, you know, to the 50s and 60s, there was still a little more room for innovation than I think there is today. Now things like accrediting bodies are so formalized, uh, it becomes increasingly difficult to do that kind of experiment. Uh, for example, just with uh, most accrediting bodies in the United States have little to no processes for new institutions, unless you have hundreds of millions of dollars already in your pocket. So most of the time what happens when a new institution starts is it borrows its accreditation from another institution. Everything from community colleges do this down to the kind of new liberal arts experiments. So particularly in the US context, this makes for uh, a, 
an inability for new institutions to start. Um, and even for institutions that are there, all the problems that are across higher education already are exacerbated in them. Uh, like for example, the closure of Marlboro College, which is like one of the problems for them is even though they had a healthy endowment, uh, you know, if tuition drops 20% at an institution that almost solely relies on it, uh, you do not have that much cushion. In a few years, your fiscal solvency is not there in the same way. I think another struggle is boards uh, at these institutions are uh, frankly not uh, well equipped for these kinds of threats and crises. Um, you know, there's recently Concordia University in Portland and then Marlhurst as well that closed. And in both cases, you know, you would see uh, a pretty striking, if not fiscal mismanagement, uh, really fiscal unpreparedness for the kinds mm -hmm. of transformations we're seeing in higher education. And even at innovative alternative institutions where there's a lot of loyalty, there's not a lot of equipment to adjust to the pretty radically changing circumstances that are happening. And I don't think boards and administrators, even the well-intentioned ones, are terribly well equipped to think about how to reorganize their institutions to the future especially ones that are in rural campuses where student bodies are increasingly drawn to metropolitan areas where they can also get work, which is, you know, perfectly reasonable and makes sense, especially if you're going to a small institution with very high tuition rates. Uh, but at the same time, if you don't have that many students and you don't get very many public funds or research funds, uh, it puts you in a precarious position. Um, there's also just, as time develops, real tensions, especially with radical ideas. You know, are you going to accept money from big uh, corporate funders, uh, Prescott College, one of the most important environmental experiential education institutions in the United States in Prescott, Arizona, has Waltham family money from, um, from Walmart. Uh, and in fact, it funded quite a few buildings. They wouldn't, hmm. simply wouldn't have been able to do that if they didn't take the money. And it's a, another question entirely if they hadn't had some basic support like that, if they would continue to be in existence. Um, uh, one a real question, I think, for in short, for these kind of utopian experiments is it's easy to start and actually make some change, even for a short bit. It is very difficult to be, to continue to be that kind of center for utopian experimentation, either just because the, the world's too unstable, or on the other hand, you get kind of too set in your ways. Um, and that includes conclude uh, inward navel gazing, by the way, and saying the old practices we did make us great and not really mean sensitive to the world you're in. I think that happens mm -hmm. uh, much of the time as well. So extremely difficult is the answer. And everything facing higher education, especially small liberal arts colleges, particularly puts these institutions in jeopardy. And it's happened before in the 80s was a, a really bad moment too. That's partially uh, why many, you don't see many of these 60s experiments, including this really cool free colleges experiments kind mm -hmm. of informal underground institutions that used to be across the United States. They did not do well with the kind of both changing culture and changing economic situation. Um, but then again, Berea College started in the Depression at a pretty hard moment in the Depression too. Um, it just did something pretty radical and was able to kind of worm its way around. So maybe uh, only one hypothesis I have is if there's room for optimism, maybe it will have to be increasingly para-academic build kind of new routes uh, outside the kind of accreditation and other sorts of monsters. Um, and the last thing I'll say that's controversial but interesting is tenured faculty uh, at these institutions, I think really struggle with protecting their autonomy, but at the same time being um, 
willing to adjust to a radically different situation to protect their institution. It doesn't mean mm. that administrators are always great. It doesn't mean that they're always making too much money. But I think sometimes it's used as an excuse and a crush to ignore the adjunct question and you know, fair contract practices that they should support, to ignore that their institution may have to radically change and that their uh, disciplinary identity may need to change along with it to serve a kind of broader audience that they're supposed to be serving at these kinds of institutions too. So I think that's another kind of complication is a model of tenure that tells uh, those who are in their full positions that they shouldn't change to protect their autonomy at the same time their institution really has to change. So I think it's mm. a, a struggle thing. I'm not saying they're in the wrong. I just think it's another thing where we're kind of there's a mismatch between the situation and what's going on. Do you find in some of those cases, is there a challenge related to, I mean, the maybe internalized ideology or even the hopefulness of some of the faculty that, that, that teach in those institutions, uh, thinking like, hey, you know what, what we're doing is part of this great, you know, it has this great social purpose and aim. And so it, it's only fair that I, you know, make certain sacrifices in order to ensure that this stays afloat. And 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 in, and then with that you know thought process, there's uh, you know perhaps an acceptance of the sometimes the more exploitative or less uh, secure working conditions and that sort of thing. Is that one of the the dilemmas that's wrapped up? I think up even the this? start out, many of these positions simply don't have the kind of job security or pay that you would get at a normal institution. So for sure, yeah. there's already frustration from the beginning. But I think it's coupled with you know aspirate you know aspirations they've been told from their disciplines they want. So it's like both and, but I think the and is difficult for them. Yes, they teach a lot. Yes, it's not really recognized by the admin. Um, and uh, being a part of an experiment probably means at this point some pretty radical shifts in how you teach and what you teach and how you think about your disciplinary identity to you know, serve an institution serving pretty radically different kinds of students. Um, so, at, you know, in this point, I find people who are at the borders of, you know, like uh, a Kathy Davidson or other people who work at the borders of, you know, either community colleges or public policy or social justice advocacy, who have worked with different constituencies and haven't just, you know, gone through the, uh, the disciplinary education that most people have gone through, have a mm -hmm. little more sensibility that it's okay to find those adjustments too. In fact, mm -hmm you can build solidarity and actually serve adjuncts and other people if you're not so recalcitrant about the kind of the old position and old ideology. Um, so I, I think it's about figuring out the and in respectful ways. And again, I think why I bring up adjuncts is I think that's a, a broader case study in this. It's not adjuncts or us in tenure. And that very sensitivity, I think, shows a kind of old pattern of thinking that's not sensitive to the situation and how we build solidarity for real change that can serve all of us. When, when you were recounting some of that history, I, I think you kind of mentioned in passing the HBCUs, historically yeah. black colleges, universities, and how many HBCUs have uh, adopted this model or tried to implement? Uh, I mean, in some ways you could consider many of them this kind of experiment and actually yeah. Berea before it was segregated, was considered, uh, uh, I mean, could consider what before that period, uh, an HBCU and mm -hmm. was a part of a network like Morehouse that led to the civil rights movement. That's where both where MLK was educated and much of the guard of the civil rights movement and things like philosophical personalism and uh, 
Berea College, in fact, was going to be one of the sites for training for the Freedom Riders. Uh, and hmm. then because of basically death threats, they shifted it to Miami University of Ohio, where they could be uh, slightly more secure. Um, so actually, I think they, uh, there's an uh, untold story in this extent to the other institutions, or at least I shouldn't say untold. There are many scholars studying it, but there are many people who don't understand the role of historically black colleges in really important movements in the United States mm-hmm. and how it framed people's identities and how they thought of their work. Um, also challenges and controversies, of course, you know, uh, Morehouse has a, a interesting and complex in, uh, uh, relationship with things like the Black Panther Party with, um, semi, you know, Samuel L. Jackson was kicked out of there um, during some radical protests. So, uh, and again, in another one of these circumstances where there was this tension between keeping an into a emotional, cultural and intellectual center for a marginalized community protected uh, and, and at the same time, standing up for things that are fundamental, even if it means the potential destruction of the institution. That's uh, been a real hard challenge for them. Something else that Jim had touched on in the interview, the uh, possibility of a kind of co-optation. And yeah. I, I was just, just thinking just now about some of the heterodox online academies that have cropped up that are, I think, kind of appealing to some folks who are, are fed up with the uh, higher education system as it currently exists. And, and some of these, I think, heterodox schools sometimes tend to play on some of the, for lack of uh, more precise terminology, a kind of uh, right-wing uh, sentiment and, and disaffection with higher education that's mixed with other, you know, perhaps the legitimate uh, concerns and, and issues. And so I was, I was wondering, you mentioned the alternative avenues and that sort of thing. I wonder to what extent you see a danger in uh, some of these, uh, these self-styled heterodox schools that are primarily online and that are, are trying to uh, appeal to uh, students who want something alternative, who want something kind of autonomous or independent, but then perhaps don't offer the same sort of, or the sort of holistic curriculum that is emphasized in many of the schools that, that um, what you've been talking about. Yeah, I think that's a, definitely a hard balance. There's no easy answer. Um, and, you know, by the way, even historic institutions struggled with this. Late Black Mountain College, by the time there was kind of a, a, what became known as the Black Mountain Poet Schools in its kind of declining days. I'm not sure you would have wanted to be at that institution. It was pretty sketchy. Even violent with, you know, alcoholism and aggression on campus. It was not what I would call, you know, a, a nice and stable place to be. Um, so just this is a quick note, you know, historically, this can be uh, uh, uncomfortable and messy with many betrayals, especially even with the loyalty people have. And, you know, that's predatory for abuse, too. And Naropa College's founder is infamous for uh, some pretty uncomfortable relationships with the students. So, you know, there's always an edge of kind of culty behavior on one hand. Uh, and th- that being abuse of money and fiscal mismanagement, especially with that. Uh, and, you know, coercion of students, for sure. And I, and I think the same is true today, especially when there's an open frontier on kind of the edges of the academy. Um, and, you know, I actually think it can be uh, uh, 
even off the the right left uh, spectrum. You know, I have mm-hmm. uh, mixed feelings about Alain de Dupont's, uh, Dupont's uh, what is it, his school of life. You know, mm-hmm. seems can be seen pretty predatory. There's lots of kind of left attempts on online institutions with more open, developing formats. And while the, the you know they have even some of them are well intentioned, oftentimes there's complaints by students as they try to figure it out. Um, I think one of the worst ones is this expectation of because it's online and open, uh, it's going to solve all our problems, especially mm-hmm. for students that are already don't have. Um, some of the basic learning skills needed to be successful in that environment. In fact, there's a lot of research that suggests things like MOOCs, massive open online courses, best work for students who um, already have some independency and training and motivation to learn and some of the skill sets to succeed in that and work less good for people up front. Um, so I think there's some kind of magic fix all wishful thinking. Sometimes they're just frank predatory behavior for sure. And when mm-hmm. you have little to no regulation, you know, there can be a, an open frontier, a wild west. Uh, I think a really interesting case study in this, and one that people might not think about, but I, I consider in the kind of greater higher education context, is things like the modern stoicism movement, uh, which people like Donard, uh, uh, Donald uh, Robertson. Um, they, they have like an on, it's a kind of informal community online. There's a few main official sites. But, you know, they have a, a 50,000 people, I think, are on their Facebook membership right now. And although I, I think all the leaders involved are very thoughtful and well-educated, many of them have PhDs and come from traditional academic environments, or if not, are, are pretty thoughtful and engaged with historical tents on nuanced readings and how this can apply to daily life practice. Um, when there's no regulation, right, and people are so interested in it, it's just, it becomes easy fodder for everything that uh, we were talking about. And that includes the far right with, um, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, Mark Zuckerberg's sister wrote this recent book about uh, uh, the far right's attempts to claim classicism in their name online mm-hmm. and pretty aggressively. And, you know, was the same kind of fake news behavior attributing the Marcus Aurelius things he never said. Hmm. Total misunderstanding, reading him with some sort of, you know, and the stoicism as sort of some modern libertarianism without any sensibility for the context. and mission of social service to the broader community. Um, uh, so it's, you know, easy in open spaces and on the edges of things for things to run amok. Um, and I do mean that as someone who speaks Indonesian and knows the kind of social standing of what running amok came from. It's just easy for things to get pushed to the edge and be pretty unstable. Uh, so I, I, the answer to, for that very long articulation is I don't think there is an easy answer there, save for um, some sensibility that, uh, you know, your utopian experiment is not a fix-all for everything. It will be tragic and fragile from the beginning. And some humility about that from the get-go, I think, always helps an institution. That was a strong commitment to do something bold. And at the same time, some humbleness and respectfulness for difference uh, is a, a really critical balance to be able to maintain without it becoming coercive. Was there anything else that was mentioned in the interview you wanted to discuss at length? Oh, I, I think, well, there was lots of things, uh, particularly with the future of higher education, but I think that will come up in different interviews as well. Um, and it's they're pretty much ongoing questions about whether we're gonna be left with a few super university hubs and then some satellite campuses and distance learning institutions and what else will be left after that happened. But I think that's something for a continued conversation during our podcast.